Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. If you appreciate it and feel like supporting it in any amount, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site, and there's also a donate page that offers or explains other ways to donate. My guest today is Bonnie Greenwell. Um, I interviewed Bonnie several years ago and really enjoyed the conversation. In fact, I listened to that conversation this week and thought there was quite a bit in it. We really covered a lot of ground. So if, if those listening to this one find it interesting, you might want to check out the previous one as well. Bonnie is a transpersonal psychotherapist and non-dual teacher in the lineage of Adyashanti. After her kundalini awakening in graduate school, she wrote a dissertation and book on the kundalini process. In 2003, she met Adya and experienced a deep shift in consciousness that led to editing his book, Emptiness Dancing, which I think I have on the shelf right behind me, and an invitation to teach. She has worked as a mentor guide for people in kundalini or awakening processes for over 30 years. Her fourth book, When Spirit Leaps, Navigating the Process of Spiritual Awakening, was released last June. Bonnie was a founder and director of the Kundalini Research Network and has trained people internationally to work with spiritual emergence and understand Kundalini phenomena. She believes the awakening of consciousness to truth is a natural realization available to all who sincerely long for self-realization and that Kundalini is fundamentally a clearing and transformative energetic support for this process. She offers webinars and consultations on the web and can be contacted through her website and her Awakened Living blog, which I'll be linking to from her page on batgap.com. Welcome, Bonnie. Thanks for doing this again. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Um, I've often referred people to you over the years who get in touch with some kundalini situation, usually something that rather concerns them. And I usually refer people to you or to Joan Harrigan. Joan is kind of retiring from that now, so I guess it'll just be you. And also Lawrence Edwards is, is a good person to refer people to. I've interviewed him also. Thank you. I've appreciated oh. that. And I've enjoyed all the contacts that I make. It's been a really a real gift for me to uh, meet all the fascinating people who contact me over the years. Yeah. Me too. With I mean, it's kind of we in, we move an interesting company when we do this sort of thing, don't we? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's uh, it's really lovely, isn't it? I mean, it, it's just uh, fun. You get to meet the most interesting people and hear the most amazing stories. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I don't know if we covered in in your first interview the Kundalini awakening you had when you were in college or graduate school. Um, we want in case we didn't. Would you want to just re Explain that a little bit, what happened to you? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, first of all, I went back to graduate school when I was about 40. So I wasn't just a college, a young college student. Um, and I was going to the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. And at that time, I had about 15 years of meditation that I had been doing meditation pretty steadily for a long time. And also um, 
had done a lot of Jungian analysis, a lot of therapy. I was uh, licensed as a marriage and family counselor at the time. So I had a lot of background. And I went to ITP because at the time it had a lot of, um, it did a lot of body work as well as um, spiritual teachers would come through and speak. And I just knew that I was interested in those things and that I might as well get a doctorate for doing it. So uh, when I was there, I um, went to a workshop with Gay Hendricks. Um, have you ever interviewed Gay? He uh, was... Uh, no, I remember the name, Gay and Bonnie Hendricks. Uh, no, it's uh, uh, Kathleen. Uh, Catherine. Catherine. Uh, Catherine. Okay. Yeah, and uh, Gay was a. Um, he was doing something called radiance breath work at the time. Now he works more with relationships, but at that time he was doing radiance breath work. And I watched him working with someone else, and I immediately knew it had to do with spiritual awakening. It was the first time, even though I'd been in many uh, yogic systems and other places, I hadn't seen the strong connection between the body and spiritual awakening before. So I went to Gay and asked him to work with me and just told him I wanted to let go of any barriers I had to knowing God and uh, worked with Gay. And after just one intense session, I... Uh, went back to class. I was sitting on the floor in ITP. In those days, we sat in a circles on the floor. And um, my energy just started rising. It just went up over and over and over again. And I was getting extremely ecstatic from it. And uh, when the class was over, went out to the little meditation room there and just sat for a couple of hours and kind of went into an altered space. And fortunately, I was in an environment where there were other people who were familiar with Kundalini, and I didn't have any fear about it. I, I knew what it was from watching gay work and from talking to other people there. I was also quite involved with Esalen and Stan Groff at the time. Uh, so I was just on the verge of writing a doctoral dissertation and decided to do my dissertation in, on Kundalini. And because the experience it tended to me for me it was very very wonderful for several months just incredible bliss spontaneously um walking down the street and feeling connected with everything it was a really wonderful experience and i got curious about the difference between because i kept hearing from people who were having diff had had difficulties with it so i wrote a dissertation exploring what's the difference between someone who has a positive experience and someone who has difficulties with it and that became my research and it led to uh, publishing my first book and establishing the Kundalini Research Network with other people that I found that were involved and interested in the topic. Okay, well, that's a good overview. Um, what kind of meditation had you been doing for 15 years? Well, you know, um, when I was young, I, I uh, had an, a Jungian analyst who was a follower of Yogananda. So I did, I used to sit with him. He did meditation groups one morning a week. And then I had a friend that was a psychologist that was a student of Muktananda's. And so I also sat with him part of the time. Then I also got interested in uh, the three pillars of Zen, the book, the three pillars of Zen. And so I was also exploring that. Uh, before this had happened, um, 
I had been involved with an organization called Creative Initiative Foundation, and that was my first exposure to the idea of meditation and to even also to Jungian psychology. And when I left that organization, I just had this incredible longing um, to make a connection, a deeper connection. And that drove me into the sitting for hours, actually, my get my children off to school, and I would spend many hours a day just sitting. Uh, so I explored different, uh, different approaches and did different practices at different times. This brings up an interesting question, which I wasn't going to ask until later, but it kind of relates, I think, to what you're saying. Um, someone named Clarice from Freehold, New Jersey, um, asked, is awakening predetermined? Some teachers seem to avoid answering this question because they don't want people to lose the motivation to practice. This, and, I, and she also adds this is perhaps related to the topic of free will. And the reason I think it's relevant to what you were just saying is that, you know, some people just seem to come into this life with... Um, the seeds of a very strong, ardent desire for awakening and enlightenment and so on, and and it just consumes them, and, and they pursue it and very often get results. And, you know, others just aren't interested. Texts such as the Bhagavad Gita talk about how, you know, we might have done spiritual practice in a previous life and then come into this life and, you know, be born into circumstances that will be conducive to continuing our, our path. So do you have any comments or thoughts about whether it's predetermined? And I know we're going to talk a lot about the significance of practice. I, I don't think even if you think it's predetermined that you would say that don't bother doing anything and, uh, and it'll happen if it's meant to happen. I don't think we can know if it's predetermined. That would just be an opinion or a, um, a belief system. Um, I think that the potential for awakening is built into every human, but the longing for it varies greatly and that many people are just so distracted by other uh, goals and intentions and, and uh, challenges in their lives that they're just never drawn to those kinds of existential questions that draw meditators. Uh, so I feel that that anybody who has a deep longing, I think that's kind of the primary dynamic that supports awakening is this deep longing and a persistence with that. And that um, in a way you could say that that's what that which is longing is the truth, is the pure consciousness. And it's simply meeting that call. On the other hand, I've met many people who have had spontaneous awakenings who weren't intending it at all. And in those cases, it might indeed be predetermined or it might, very often it appears possible that it was work that they had done in a previous life and they were just obviously going to wake up in this life whether they expected it or intended it or not. So it can happen both ways. There's many different events and uh, shifts that can happen that cause somebody to have a sudden, at least a glimpse of truth. It doesn't mean they wake up and they stay awake and enlightened suddenly. It just means they have glimpses. They're being called by their deeper psyche yeah. in a way. When you use phrases like wake up or stay awake or so on, it, it kind of sounds black and white, on and off. You know, it's like either you're awake or you're not we take the example of sleep at night, um, you know, obviously there is a transition period between waking and sleeping, 
where we're sort of trying to wake up, but we're not all the way there yet. Um, and then obviously a little bit later, and when we're into our day, we're, we would say we're totally awake as compared to what we were when we're asleep. So do you think that's a, a, a reasonable metaphor for um, spiritual awakening as well, that it's, uh, th there could be you know, kind of deep darkness where it's hardly any glimpse of it, and there could be very clear realization of it, but there could also be a, uh, a middle ground, um, which is sort of foggy, but still some degree of it? I think a, a better metaphor would be uh, somebody that has to wake up every couple hours at night and get up and then goes back to sleep again. I think that what happens for most people is there's a glimpse or there's an initial, an, what I call an initiating event um, in which suddenly they everything falls away and they're just standing there in their pure connection with everything or a very clear sense of I don't exist. Uh, I'm not, it's not, I'm not what I thought I was. But then the old uh, psychological patterns and the old identities come back again. And I, I believe that for many years, for most people, there's a kind of a moving back and forth between the sense of freedom and openness and expansion and then the sense of contraction and being entangled in some old emotional issue or dynamic that they have to deal with. That's why I think of the energetics of the Kundalini process as being a clearing process because it it feels like the energy supports that clearing that has to happen, that letting go of you know, I thought I was really free and now this has come up. So clearly I'm not free anymore. And people get very upset about that. But the sense, the awakeness is always there. It's just that all these other preoccupations and distractions and you could say your your dharma, the things that are going to arise in your life that belong to you, they arise. They have to be met. They have to be understood or, or released or accepted in some way, in some new way, so that uh, that light of pure consciousness has more opportunity to shine through. So it goes on. I think for most of our lives, for most people, it doesn't, it, it's not a permanent state for most people, uh, at least not for a long time. In fact, um, Aja once told me that the Buddhists say that after an awakening, uh, you should allow about 12 years uh, for it to mature or become more stable. And that's if you stay committed to your practice. Uh, you're not just uh, saying, oh, I'm done, and you wander off into other, other distractions. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's dwell on this a bit more in terms of definition of awakening and versus enlightenment and so on. I mean, I hear Adya himself saying that even in his own experience, there's a continuing growth and, um, you know, and who knows if or when it ever ends. And some people, you know, would take exception to that and they would say, well, you know, that, to, that which awakens doesn't change and so how can it grow? Um, and uh, what would be your answer to that? Well, the awakeness doesn't change. I mean, the awakeness is, is there, but it as I said, it gets kind of clouded over by our personal uh, preferences and, and attachments and challenges. And 
And uh, so you could think of it more that the sky never changes. Um, the sky is always there, but sometimes it's full of clouds. Sometimes it's full of, of, of darkness and shadows, and sometimes it's just bright sunlight. So the, the ground of being isn't going to change, but your ability to be in touch and move from that, it's going to vary greatly depending on many different uh, circumstances. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, I mean, we could obviously we could even say that a rock has the same ground of being that we do, uh, but the rock has some room for growth <laughs> in terms of being a conscious, functioning being of some sort. <laughs> and by the same token, you know, we have room for growth. Perhaps we're better off than the rock, but uh, doesn't mean we've we or anyone has reached the sort of ultimate possibility of of embodiment embodying pure consciousness. The human that we are uh, is gets attached to our humanness. Uh, our, we're designed to be human in human bodies, to function as human beings with one another in separation. So when consciousness wakes itself up, uh, the human characteristics, the patterning that we have that's just programmed into us to be human beings is very alarmed by letting itself fall away. So there's there's going to always be a struggle between the character me and this, which at first feels very unknown, very much not me that's coming up through us and, and in a way trying to take over our lives. So there's a sense of struggle for most people for a long time before they can really let go and, and let the insights and wisdom and potentiality of their true nature to come through. It's just natural. It's just natural because we've, we've been built as a physiological system in such a way that we, we believe we're separate. We believe we're, and often the people that are going through this have spent many years improving their self-image or their abilities to function in the world. You know, they've individuated and, uh, it's like you have the feeling of I'm going to lose all of that. It's all, it's all been for nothing. But the whole way I've been living my life was wrong. And, and you get into these struggles. And, and that's the reason that there's room for growth. It's, it's, there was room for more and more letting go. It would be a better way of saying it. Would you say that that's true of everyone, that there's a struggle and a feeling that you're losing your ability to function? Or is that just one of a, a number of varieties of experience that can come up there's some kind of a of a dynamic between uh the old established personal self and the deeper true nature which has a very different sense of identity that can vary greatly it, for example somebody that's been in a very long-term spiritual practice and this is what they've been looking for for a long long time is is this uh, awakeness or awareness or samadhi, whatever they experience, um, then they have a context for it. Um, they might uh, more easily let go than somebody who had a near-death experience uh, or was in a car accident and it activated their energies and uh, they were doing something, you know, they were, one woman, for example, was a dentist 
and she uh, activated her energy through some shamanic workshops she went through. And uh, it's very hard if you're very scientifically oriented and all of a sudden you're seeing things very differently. So it it varies greatly from one person to another how they meet um, the new experiences that arise. Yeah, but I guess just to summarize the the general point you're making here is that awakening entails a a real transformation of the vehicle through which awakening is experienced or anything is experienced, uh, namely the the mind, the nervous system, the personality. You can't pour new wine into old wineskins that you're going to have to get a new wineskin or transform the old one into a new one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's what Jesus was alluding to when he said that. Yeah, I think that's true. It, it's that's what the energy process does. the The yogis say we have seventy two thousand lines of energy flow in our body, and uh, I feel that we are energy fields. In fact, I saw a quote by Einstein the other day where he said, "Everything is energy. If you could move as, at the speed of light, you would become infinite." Uh, so we're energy fields, and everything that's ever happened to us in this life and maybe even previous lives is is woven into our energy field. So when Kundalini arises, its function is that clearing out of those old knots and patterns and belief systems and uh, assumptions that have kind of been created in our energy field and our consciousness because of our past experiences. Yeah. That's an interesting quote by Einstein. Um, You know, it takes, what, about two million years for light to get to us from the Andromeda galaxy. Um, But if you were a photon, if you could imagine a photon having a perspective, uh, the photon arrives instantly. So for a photon, there's no distance. Um, The photon, you could say, is infinite, as Einstein said. It's it's omnipresent. It's it's everywhere instantly. Um, And... I think there's a kind of corollary between that and the way consciousness is described. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in your book, you mentioned at some point that some spiritual people or traditions, perhaps Advaita or maybe new Advaita people dismiss the whole energy thing as kind of an illusory consideration that we shouldn't bother dwelling on. Um, You know, we're just kind of getting ourselves caught up in, in, unnecessary complexities or something if we give much attention to it. And you address that question or doubt in your book. So I'll I'll let you do so here. You know, one of the reasons I've written this book and all my books, but particularly this last one, is that so many of the people who contact me have been part of a traditional spiritual system. And often uh, if they raise energy or they have unusual uh, phenomena going on in their meditation centers, they're told that it's wrong or it's dangerous or they shouldn't uh, be coming to sittings anymore because they're disturbing people. And um, they're not being uh, given the kind of support and guidance that they need. And I feel uh, this is true not only for uh, therapists who often misdiagnose uh, a spiritual awakening, but it's, it's true for yoga teachers, it's true for Buddhist meditation teachers, it's true for uh, even sometimes uh, energy workers when people go into transcendent states or particularly energetic activities, sometimes they make sounds, 
Sometimes their body is doing strange things all night and they get frightened. They don't have anyone to talk to because their teachers don't understand the process. Unless you have a teacher that's really gone through the whole process themselves, and many have not, they're not going to have an understanding of it. And the advantage I have over a teacher who does understand it is that I've seen many different systems, people coming out of many different systems with many different kinds of phenomena, where most teachers who teach about kundalini are teaching from a single, this is how it's supposed to be, this is what it looks like. Um, One teacher that a student of mine wrote to inquiring about his difficulties, wrote back and said, this can't be kundalini because kundalini is always positive. So, you know, it it just... Where's he been living? (laughs) Yeah, it just crushes people. It just just really... uh, uh, So many people have written me and said when they found my book, they wish they had found it 10 years earlier because they had struggled for such a long time. Uh, They didn't know what the energy was. They didn't know how to manage it. They were afraid they were going crazy and they didn't know how to bring it. What I found is a lot of people are just stuck in the energetic process. They don't know about waking up. They don't even know what it means in a sense to wake up, to recognize your true nature. And so if they can continue to move in that direction, once that shift happens, the energy is much calmer, much easier to live with. Uh, and let me also say that what's been important to me, uh, what I've learned and been so grateful for, is I started out with the yogic model. And I spent some time in India, and I did a lot of research about the classical way of looking at kundalini. And in yoga, it's it's uh, definitely a Uh, model that uses the energy body to bring one into an awakened state, to bring energy up and wake up. And when I was in that model, I didn't know that it was so possible to have an awakening without the energy. But when I started sitting with Ajashanti, I started seeing people have awakenings, having these great shifts of consciousness. Uh, But afterwards, their energy would start to activate. So I've been really blessed in seeing that that it can happen from both uh, in both ways. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes in Advaita or Buddhist systems, uh, there's not a recognition of the energy. And in the energy systems, there's not a recognition that awakening can happen first. And I've been fortunate to be able to see both sides of that picture. Yeah. Pull any one leg of the table and all the other legs will come along. (laughs) Um, One thing I appreciate about your books um, and your whole perspective is that it's so kind of um, all-encompassing. You you know, you're open to all possibilities as having relevance to the awakening process. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, which I think I also consider that my perspective because I have to if I'm doing a show like this I'm talking to such a variety of people and uh, and I hear week after week you know significant you know, stories of very significant shifts and awakenings and so on through such a variety of means and you know I kind of like, if I had to summarize it I would just say that you know God is not a one-trick pony I mean the the, the diversity of creation that we see in, in a rainforest or in, in the world in general is paralleled by the diversity of 
spiritual paths or, or means through which uh, or varieties of experience which people can have as, as they awaken. That's true. That's the advantage of someone like yourself or like me uh, who gets to, because we get to hear stories that obviously come from so many different uh, traditions, practices, encounters with life. Um, so you can see the broad range of ways that people transform and that awakening can happen. I was talking to a gentleman last weekend and he had gotten some flack from religious fundamentalists at a certain stage of his path. And uh, you know, I had reminded him that there are some 40 billion Earth-like planets in our galaxy by most estimates. And they're saying these days about perhaps 10 trillion galaxies in the known universe. And if, if even 1% of those Earth-like planets, and who's to say they have to be Earth-like, have some kind of intelligent life on them that has you know, begun to tune into the, the spiritual dimension, just think how many <laughs> varieties of, of spiritual experience there are in the universe and, it, and how absurd it is for any, anyone to be rigidly insistent that theirs is the best or the only way. I think a lot of times, uh, particularly fundamentalist systems, um, they're really threatened if their uh, participants uh, wake up. Uh, they're not, the, the whole idea of somebody having a direct experience of the sacred or of God or of the universe is uh, threatening to the hierarchical structures and the belief systems because you you don't believe anymore. It's not about believing. It's about having a direct experience. And uh, in many systems, you're really not supposed to do that. You're supposed to go on faith in the system that has been presented to you and in the particular minister or priest that is the head of that system. Uh, so it's very hard for people who wake up in a, in a real uh, fundamentalist system. And often they get terrible um, advice being told it must be of the devil or it must be uh, dangerous or they sound crazy or, you know, and, and um, it, it can be very damaging. So it's, it's very important. I think what you're doing is very important. I refer people to you all the time, too. And, um, and I think uh, that people, what I'm hoping, you know, I'm, I'm getting old. I'm wanting to get this material out there and in the hands of ministers and priests and um, various people who are in a role where they can tell somebody, just give someone a book or tell them, Perhaps this is what's happening to you instead of frightening them to death. Yeah, it's great you're doing that because as I see it, the sort of pace of awakening and the frequency uh, of it and the, the commonality of it the pop, the, in the world is increasing. There's something in the field you know, that's getting enlivened and more and more people are waking up. And as you say, in many cases, they don't know what it is or they get flack from their religious leaders and so on so i think it's it's really something that's going to have to become more common knowledge and is becoming more common um, as we go along over the over the coming years and unfortunately as it becomes more common knowledge there's also quite a bit of distortion on the web so that is people need to be cautious people need to find their own intuitive knowing about what's right for them 
and uh, really develop that that capacity for discrimination along with the trust in their own energy and their own experiences um, because there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of distortion in the paths that are presented to people and and uh, you can get stuck in on the wrong direction for a while uh, also you know um, yeah before you get off that point if you're if you're going to change points I just want to say I've been thinking about that as I was reading your book and about the importance of both knowledge and experience. It's like they're, t- they're, they're like the two legs through which we walk on the spiritual path, and you can't really walk on one leg. And so experience without knowledge can result in all kinds of fear and confusion and misunderstanding and, you know, taking thorazine or something mm-hmm. because you think you're going crazy and knowledge without experience can become fanatical and pedantic and dry and one can mistake mere knowledge for the actual experience to which it refers so i think it's really a, an important safeguard and a, a necessity on the spiritual path to be simultaneously culturing both in a genuine I way i feel like the one of the, my prime um, intentions in my work has been to create a context so that you have a, a correct context for the uh, kinds of phenomena that's arising, which in my opinion is that this is uh, an opportunity for human transformation. It's happening to you because you've been invited to uh, for your consciousness to wake up and live in a new way in the world. And it can be thought of as a spiritual event, uh, but it doesn't have to be. It can be thought of as a uh, human potential transformative experience of being more connected to the ground of being. And two people might have the very same experience and interpret it in both mm-hmm. those different ways. You know, um, it's like we all you know, we look at a painting or we listen to some music and we all have very different interpretations of it, yet it's the same painting same music same right. sunset we're looking at yeah it touches us and impacts us in different ways and it also calls us i think to a new expression in the world if we if we stay with it if we embody what we've seen what we've felt it calls us to uh, find a way of expressing it or expressing what from our deepest core feels uh necessary to come through us uh, I expect that's what happened to you, and that's why you're doing the work you do. Some something called you to express, and <laughs> actually, in a way, Adya called me. I mean, I've been I've been doing this stuff for you know my own spiritual practice for and pursuit for decades. But I was out in the garage listening uh, listening to Adya Shanti while working out on a Bowflex machine, and the idea popped into my head to do an interview show. And then that idea wouldn't leave me alone. And initially I thought of it as a local radio show and this little station we have here, but that, that wasn't really going to happen. And, and then finally we got it started and put it on the internet. One thing led to the next, but I've always felt like there's a, a real nice wind at my back and, and doing this project is something that's needed. And something that's, a, that's such supported. a good point because uh, a lot of times 
people who have had an awakening and it's fairly established, they want to know what to do. And, uh, you know, when we're younger or before you would say we're driven by the intellect or the mind or the intention, you know, we have goals in life and we're going after those goals. But uh, it doesn't work that way after an awakening. It works as a spontaneous hunch that keeps arising. And uh, the same thing happened to me after my Kundalini awakening. Um, out of some, I wrote, I took wrote my dissertation. There was nothing else I could have written about. I was so full of this energy. And then I turned it into a book with the thought that if only one person gets some use out of this, it's worth my time. And then somehow the Kundalini Research Network evolved. And uh, it was like, it just happened through me. I managed it for several years. And it was effortless. It was just happening. And it, it it really was not something I decided in my head, I'm going to do this. It was like, just came through. It's like, okay, bring people together that have had these experiences. Um, and I think people need to understand that if the answer to what to do, it has to do with listening, really intuitively dropping in and, and waiting for that ins inspiration. And if it's the right thing for you, it'll keep kind of bubbling. It'll keep coming up until you lean into it a little bit and see if it's it's what you're meant to do. Yeah. And you were talking a little earlier about discrimination um, and discernment. Um, you know, I think some people can swing too far in the other direction where they, they're just sort of following their impulses because they feel like that's the way the universe is guiding me. But you can end up yeah. indulging in whims, you know, yeah. you can quit a good job or quit a good relationship or something mm -hmm. just because you have some kind of that's impulse. <laughs> it all needs to be tempered and, and kind of counterbalanced with other factors and, and I think that's and so true. Um, you have to learn the difference between um, the ego's impulses and the, the true nature, the deeper uh, potentialities. Usually I tell people if something keeps coming up, or, you know, repeats itself, maybe it belongs to you. Lean in a bit, but don't get attached to the results. Just lean in and see what happens. And if it's meant for you, if it's the right thing, it'll unfold in just the right way. If it's not, you'll you'll feel uncomfortable. You won't be happy pretty quickly. And you'll know, um, no, nah, this isn't going to work for me, or this was just temporary. I don't know why, but it's past. Even with the Kundalini Network, there was a time that that energy ran out for me, and it was just over for me. And... Um, and when I left that organization, within a few weeks or months, I met Ajashanti, and that opened a whole new door. Uh, and then I uh, helped him with some, well, with emptiness dancing. I decided to create emptiness dancing. That was another one of those impulses. And for a long time, I thought, well, I don't really want to ask him if I can do this. It sounds like I'm just trying to get attention or something. I didn't know if it was an egoic impulse or not, but it kept coming up. So finally, I just went to him and said, uh, I knew he had all these talks that had been uh, written, that had been copied, uh, transcribed from his lectures, from his satsangs. And they were just sitting in the files doing nothing. And I said, I'd really like to take some of your talks and put them into a book. I think it would be helpful for you, for the organization. People would find you that don't know about you now. 
And uh, he said, okay. <laughs> so I did that. So that just opened me up to a whole other world, really. Um, and so that came, but it came from following something that was kind of just pulling at me. Well, what about this? Maybe you should do this. It's very interesting. You, you, it takes a while to get the, the sense of how it is to fall into that part of yourself. Um, but you can, it, it happens eventually for people that, are, that stay in this process. It does. There's a saying in Sanskrit, I don't remember the Sanskrit, but the English of it is Brahman is the charioteer. And, and I think what it means is that, you know, well, you can think of a chariot or you can think of a car and initially, you know, we're, we feel like we're driving it, you know, we're in the driver's seat, we're in control, but there's, you were talking earlier about this transition one must undergo and the transition entails among other things, a shift from who's in control uh, of, of who's in control. And eventually Brahman is found to be the charioteer, the, the, the wholeness, the cosmic intelligence or whatever is, is, and we're just going, going along for the ride, but, but it's, it, but it's tricky as, as the transition is underway and it can take decades, you know, in process because there can be this sort of gray area where it's like, you know, wh wh whose impulse is this? Is this my ego? Is this is this something that's meant to be in some deeper sense? And and, and there's kind of a constant discernment that has to sort of work be, be worked out in order to. Well, yeah, you can't surrender too much to the point of passivity and indecision, but you don't want to be sort of egotistically dominant in terms of forcing it, you know, my way or the highway. Yeah. There, there's kind of a balancing thing. That, well, that what what often time. happens is if you're <laughs> If you're moving in a direction that's not good for you, you feel crappy. You don't feel well. You you have all kinds of barriers come up, and you're not you're both interior and exterior. Yeah, um, and uh, most of us, you know, we're raised to believe we should fight through everything, but uh, instead we need to actually listen. What's the message here? Is this the right place for me? Is it too toxic? Is it? Um, uh, am I feeling dead in my work now? Do I need to really listen? And it, we need to learn to go into silence, as Ajashanti likes to point out, and do, uh, wait and be patient, because this is kind of a, a new voice in us um, that wants to be heard. But unless we go into the silence and the stillness and, and spend some time inviting it um, it's not going to show up. It's not going to show up as a, the, the true nature doesn't push through. It doesn't push through our egoic stuff. We have to kind of meet it. We have to get in a cooperative relationship with it, that we're really open and willing. There's some quote that when you said that kind of came to mind. I don't remember. There's some, some scriptural thing, either from the Bible or some Vedic thing about how, uh, maybe you can remember it, but how, you know, the divine is not pushy. It's not going to sort of beat down the door and insist that it be welcomed in. It's going to sort of need to be invited. And that there needs to be a sort of a, mm -hmm. well, a surrender, really, from our side, a, a, co a cooperativeness. And it's not going to force us uh, to do that. That's true. I've heard Ajashanti say that, too. He just talked about it that way. It's... Um, it's, that's why this, the meditation and the sitting in stillness and the resting is so important at, after an awakening to stay in that process. Uh, 
Marshi once used the analogy of um, going in for surgery. You know, surgery can't operate until you're willing to lie still and, and be, be willing to That's right. undergo the process. You know, it helps if you uh, begin to see that you never had any control anyway, that that was an illusion all along. If you look back at your life, you'll see most of the major events in it you didn't control. The person you're married to, you didn't say, I'm going to find such and such that's just like this, and and you had control over when she showed up. I met my husband in a parking lot. You know, I mean, it wasn't controlled at all. And uh, your children, when, when, you, when you have children or how your children evolve, you have very little control. You have a lot of influence uh, emotionally and psychologically, but... Most of us would say our children have moved into directions that we didn't didn't foresee for them. Uh, at least that's been my experience. And I know my mother was a very devout Catholic. She would be quite shocked to see what I'm doing now. So it's not, uh, we don't have near the control we think we do. We have the ability to respond, to accept or reject what arises we appear to have that ability, although it's probably based on our conditioning. But uh, our life had many, many of the most amazing things that have happened in your life were not uh, because you were in control of it. Yeah. Interesting that we're dwelling on this topic as much as we are, but I just reminded of you know, so many instances in which parents demand that their child be a lawyer or something like that, which is completely opposite to what they want to be. Dead Poets Society, that was one of the themes of that movie. In my case, I wanted, from the age of four, I wanted to play the drums, and my parents kept saying I should learn to play the piano first. And I hated playing the piano. <laughs> so that went on for 10 years until I finally got a drum set, and then I took right off with it. So it's, it's sort of, I don't know, obviously kids need guidance, but there's there's something about, there's this verse in the Gita that said, creatures act according to their own nature. That's what a good line. You know, that's an issue for a lot of people who have awakenings is that they're in a career that they chose or they're, maybe they're college students. One young man I'm thinking of was a, an economics major in college and he had a terrible automobile accident and it activated his energies and... Uh, he just didn't want to study economics anymore. And many people are in careers they've taken uh, because somebody directed them to that and said that that would be the wisest thing to do because they'd make more money or, or because their family, all their family does it. Their family, everybody in our family is a doctor. You remember plastics that line from the graduate in Dustin Hoffman's <laughs> right. trying to figure out what he's going to do, and the guy says, plastics. So if that's been your story, if this, your story has been you've been in the wrong field, um, or you're it, working with a group of people that feel really toxic, you won't be able to stay in that. Eventually, you're going to have to listen to your gut about what do you really want to express and how what would feel congruent and authentic and you're going to have to make some changes or you won't be happy i mean you don't have to make the changes but if you want to be content and free you may have to make some serious changes i'm going to segue here back to something we were talking about earlier and i just want to dwell on that a little bit more and then go through some other points um we were talking about awakening and you said, as, we, as you were talking about that, that it's kind of unusual for 
a kind of permanent shift to take place that there's this sort of, I got it, I lost it thing. And you kind of implied that, that that's going to be the norm for most people. But you want to correct that before I go on, if, if that's not what you All meant All I to can say? say about it is that it takes time for uh, the, the pure consciousness to be more consistently dominant. One way I tell people is that it's like, here's this, the little self, the me, the, the person, the character you've been pretending to be all your life with all your particular skills and abilities and accomplishments and problems. And here's the pure consciousness. And all of a sudden, wham, you, this is up. And then this comes back up again. It may take a, an hour. It may take a week. It may take a year, a month. Well, a few months is about the longest this ever stays. And then this comes up again. And then you're going like this. And, and eventually, if you stay committed, uh, surrendering, facing your stuff, your psychological stuff that comes up, getting your life kind of oriented in a way that feels more authentic, uh, this becomes more and more present. And eventually, this is more dominant, but this might pop up once in a while. But that's how it feels to me. That's how it seems. Among all the I've talked with 1000s of people. And of course, the, if there are people who just have one simple awakening, and they're completely free the rest of their life, they're not likely to call me. So this yeah. is true for the people that I work more with. Power to them. Yeah. Yeah, I think one thing that people might find helpful is, and I think most people understand this, is that you can have a really profound experience. Let's say you're in meditation and you have this transcendent, blissful, unbounded experience. You know, you feel like you're omnipresent or something. And every experience of that nature tends to fade. And many things tend to integrate through repeated exposure to them. And as they integrate, they become the norm. And so you don't really notice, you know, you might not even think about it. You could actually be in quite an unbounded awareness and driving your car and talking to your wife or doing whatever you're doing, but it's just kind of the natural mm -hmm. state. And it's not something one reflects upon or remarks upon, you know, upon. So it's like, you know, the contrast when something initially happens can be quite notable, but enlightenment is not a contrasting experience. It's not a flashy experience. It's, it's, more of a natural state, which um, becomes as comfortable as breathing. Uh, I agree with that. What I feel it is is a it's a it's a different way of perceiving the world, and the perception is different. It's more holistic. It's more in the moment, in present in the moment. It's more intuitive. It's more just being present with what is and non-resistant to what is. Um, those are some of the qualities that I feel um, represented. And as that becomes more the norm in how you function and you're, I think the thing that really falls away is the, uh, what Freud called the superego, you know, the part of your mind that's always telling you maybe you've made a mistake or something's wrong or what's wrong with that person that, that collapses. It doesn't have any, basis anymore so it's there's much more clarity when you're present with people or you're reading or you're listening or you're you're functioning it's just it's just being present with what is and responding in a way that feels authentic that feels 
it's coming kind of from the heart or the gut rather than uh, the intellect. The mind mind has stored all that information that you've picked up over the years, like you've mentioned several quotes, but um, it just kind of comes up spontaneously. You don't have to work to think about what you're going to say. Yeah. I know the way Eckhart Tolle operates, he, say, he says that he never prepares for his talks or anything. He just gets up on stage, gets in the car, goes to the place, gets on the stage, sits down, and, and something starts coming out of his mouth. Um, on the other hand, I know when Adya prepares a course, he, he does a lot of research, and um, you know he has books around his house with little tabs in them where he's taking notes of things and all that stuff. So I don't, I don't think the two are incompatible. I think that, and obviously if you were, let's say, an awakened person, studying to be a doctor you're not just going to wing it when you 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 have to do all kinds of study and learning and memorization and and everything to to be a, an effective doctor or airline pilot or anything else there's no incompatibility there well what i have found uh, it's been interesting i've known Aja now for i don't know maybe 18 years and i would say that for many years Everything he taught was spontaneous. It just, when he did satsang, it, it, he may have had an idea of a theme when he came in, but it, could, it was clearly spontaneous expression. And I think what happened, and I'm projecting here because I haven't ever asked him, but I think that as he began to meet so many students, thousands of students from all over the world, uh, he became much more uh, interested in looking at the cross-referencing of all the different traditions. And I think that after a while in an awakening, uh, at first it's it, everything feels really spontaneous, But and the mind, many people will say their mind is not that sharp. You can't, you can't really learn academically for a while. You don't, it feels uncomfortable. You can do it. I found for myself, I, I used to teach uh, graduate school and I couldn't, I couldn't teach from a program anymore. I just, I just hated it. I had to just teach spontaneously. And so I quit teaching graduate school. With Adya, I believe that after I, what I have seen is that I think after a certain period of time, the mind becomes much more clear and crisp in a way. And so you can go back to absorbing information, at least if it's meaningful to your your spiritual work, maybe for other things too. Maybe you become more brilliant. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Einstein was awake and he got his brilliant ideas from that. I, I don't know. But uh, I've, I've seen Aja evolve in that way and in, in the kind of programs he teaches and in his his interest in bringing in many many of the rich resources that are out there in, in the world. Yeah. I may interview him again in a week or so. If I do, I will ask him that because I think it's an interesting point. Just to put a cap on it then. I mean, I, I hesitate to use the term enlightenment because it has such a kind of superlative static connotation, like it's some kind of pot at the, of gold at the end of the rainbow kind of thing. Do you feel that there is some state that humans achieve or have achieved which is worthy of a term with such connotations? Um, or do you feel like even the most enlightened beings to ever walk the planet were probably still, st still probably had a, 
you know, horizon before them, which they could explore? Or do you feel that that's just something that you can't, none of us can really speculate on until we get there? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I think the, the biggest problem with enlightenment is everybody has a different story about what it means. Yeah, that's a problem. So I bet it, say, sh it shouldn't be that way. I mean, there must be something that that term relates to in human experience. Uh, and as, as is the case with most words, I mean, we shouldn't all have a, an opinion as to what 55 miles an hour means. Uh, <laughs> there's some kind of, you know, it means something that we have to abide by. So it would be nice if words correspond to, to actual realities and we agree upon their meaning. Well, I think it's easier just to say what you mean by it, and then uh, then you can see if say others agree, if that yeah. somebody fits in. Because some people will say, oh, it means you can walk through walls. It means you can translocate like Brahman is said to do. Uh, somebody told me the other day their, their teacher – that teachers, some of them in the classical traditional say, oh, there's, you can't possibly become enlightened in this lifetime. It takes a thousand lives. You're not ready. Or they, they take up something that somebody's described, like you mentioned the other day or sometime that uh, of a teacher you interviewed, he said he never sleeps. Some will say you never dream. So, you know, people will say, well, gee, that's not true for me. So, I'm a long way from there. I certainly can't walk through walls and trans uh, bilocate, and uh, I still have dreams occasionally. So I like to think of enlightenment more as uh, a way of being present in the world that feels very free, very open, very um, coming from uh, love comes through sometimes spontaneously for no reason at all, um, very unattached to uh, having particular results, no, less react, not reactive, wanting to be of service, and some of the other qualities that we've talked about. I would say people don't become enlightened. Enlightenment arises uh, as consciousness becomes more present. Uh, I don't believe an individual. Most people will not tell you they're enlightened. They won't use that phrase. It's not the personal little me that talks doesn't feel like that's even possibility. It's like um, that's uh, you can always find a dozen reasons why you're not enlightened. Uh, but consciousness can come through it at times and be very enlightened, very beautiful. And uh, for some people that happens more consistently, or maybe it happens permanently for some Um I think the other thing that people get confused about, and, and this is something been so wonderful for me with my friendship with Adya and, and uh, Mukti too and others, is that they're willing to be normal human too. They're not pretending to be on some elevated level that normal people can't relate to. I was in the post office once. I took a package in for the Sangha and the, the postmaster saw the name on the package and said, Oh, Steve, he's really a nice guy, isn't he? So it's just like he knows how to be, he's happy to be ordinary. And even though he's not just ordinary, he's he's got a, a perspective and a capacity to bring forth wisdom that the average person doesn't have. Yeah, I think that's one reason Ajay's Aj is so popular with a certain... He's real. Yeah. And it's a safety factor also for him and for students, because I, I, I know of a number of teachers who 
get into this specialness thing and it gets more and more inflated and they end up creating a weird scene around them. Students have a weird relationship with them. They ended up, end up crashing and burning in some way because pride goeth before fall. And um, so I think it's a safeguard for both the teacher and the students, his students or her students, to keep it grounded, you know, keep it real. I think it's very important. I think anybody that's truly free, and maybe we can talk about it more as freedom or liberation than enlightenment, anybody that's truly free does not need to be worshipped by anyone, doesn't even want to be worshipped, doesn't want to be considered special. Instead, they're likely to look at everyone else as having the same source and the same potential. They're not likely to put themselves on a pedestal or have people throw flowers at them and all of that because <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of the old the old ancient classic way of honoring your guru kind of thing and it's just not uh, maybe it was useful at one point in time because what you were doing was honoring the self in another and it was devotional but it's not relevant today it's not helpful with the kinds of people that are waking up today yeah i would temper that statement a little bit it's a little bit um um unnuanced Uh, you know i would say that firstly this whole devotional thing has is somewhat of a cultural thing it's it's more normal in india than here for instance but secondly i would say that even here there are people for whom it's still relevant I mean, you go to Siama, mm-hmm. for instance, and the scene around her is rather is quite devotional. Although the first thing she does when she comes in the hall is bow her head to the floor to everyone else. I'm just careful not to make blanket statements. Um, well, let me add something to that because I agree there. Uh, there's a stage of spiritual evolving in which very powerful devotion is very helpful. This is true in Christianity, devotion to Mary or Jesus or a saint. Uh, In India, many people choose an Ishta, which is a a special being that you choose, that you throw all your devotion to. And it's very important because it opens the heart. And so if you've had that uh, channel opened in your life and you wake up, you're much more able Uh, to move from an embodied awakening. So almost every tradition has some uh, approach to opening the heart. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I certainly went through a very strong devotional stage myself with uh, Yogananda. And uh, I've seen it in many other people. I, I don't think the devotion takes you all the way to realization, but I think it, it opens the channels for embodiment. Right. Yeah, there's an age-old debate about that between the sort of the, the Vaishnavites and the, and the Advaitins about whether, um, you know, devotion and maintaining some separation between you and God is a state you'd want to perpetually be in for the bliss of that relationship or whether you'd want to sort of go for full merger and union. And um, as, as some teachers have put it, it's not really none of your business at this stage. Decide that when you get there. <laughs> it's, not, it's not something to argue about. Okay, we were talking earlier about the, the relevance of awakening, uh, of energy to awakening, and, and you were saying how you know some teachers sort of dismiss it or cons- don't consider it terribly relevant or don't know anything about it. 
and you know others would consider it instrumental and I think you would be one of those who would say that it's definitely something that needs to be understood and dealt with because it's going to happen to so many people. But here's a question that kind of extends that a little bit and that is that is uh, is is a kundalini awakening or opening even if it comes to some completion if there is such a thing uh, uh, is that sufficient for true enlightenment or does one need some teacher or other influence to fully come to rest even after kundalini has fully awakened well that's a challenging question uh, there may be people who have had uh, all on their own a uh, complete realization of truth through a kundalini activation who have never had a teacher. Those don't tend to be the people that call me, so I can't say that I've met a lot of people like that. Let me rephrase the question slightly before you go on, and that is that is full awakening of kundalini tantamount to or perfectly correlated with full development of consciousness or enlightenment? Or is there is it just sort of one stage of it and there there might be something more that needs to be done after that or needs needs to happen? I believe it's a stage. I believe that it's the it, it's the energetic support for um, enlightenment or liberation. But um, usually in the systems that use kundalini specifically, the goal seems to be samadhi. And samadhi is not enlightenment. Samadhi is a great sense of consciousness merged with universal consciousness. We can simplify it by saying that. That's not quite enough, but that's it. And um, that's if people can go into samadhi and then they get attached to samadhi. They just spend all their time laying down or leaning against a wall and going into a cave and disappearing. Uh, there's a need for a return and, and to bring the energy back down below the neck and into the body and to um, uh, begin to, uh, sometimes there's a great need to clear out your old psychological stuff. If you have unfinished psychological business, you've never worked on it, everything is going to come up eventually. So you have to, Sometimes people that are capable of going into samadhi states or satori, and they, they love that because they feel free and escaped out of their body and their lives. But the next step is to come back in, into your life, uh, to be awakened life. That sometimes you need some guidance. You need a context. You need, you don't have, your next door neighbor is not going to help. Your parents aren't going to help. Because they, they're, they're upset that you're spending all your time detached. So you need some, some place, a community or uh, some kind of guidance to get a context of uh, how do I be alive and have had this experience? How do I live it? How do I connect with whatever this wants of me to how I should move in the world uh, and to do it in a, a way that is it's going to be unique to you? But so it's very useful to have some kind of a guide. It might be a teacher. It might be a community that is working this together in a way, supporting one another. You know, it might be a, a good friend that went there, has gone there with you. I, I can't say. I wouldn't say that no one can become enlightened without a teacher because that just makes no sense. Um, but 
it's probably rare for somebody to reach that with no guidance whatsoever. I just want to say one thing about samadhi. I'm, there's a number of different kinds of samadhis, different terms for different stages or, or degrees of samadhi, and I, I'm, I don't claim to be an expert, but I believe it's nirvikalpa samadhi, isn't it, which is supposed to mean without break, so that it's, it's, it's an integrated state which one can live in the midst of dynamic activity, and yet there's a sort of continuum of pure awareness regardless of the circumstances or what challenges you may be confronting. I think that would be comparable to uh, living from an awakened or enlightened state. Yeah. Uh, it's not as dramatic as the kind of samadhi where you're kind of out of your body, not where well, you're integrated. Yeah, it's more. You're, yeah. It's in, I mean, when, you brought when it when back Ramana down first, into your body. Yeah, you live it. Yeah, when Ramana first woke up, he went into deep samadhi in, in that pit and that temple and yeah. insects were chewing his leg right. and he was oblivious to that and all. But later on, after years in a cave and, and yeah. integration, he was fully functioning and yet in that state of samadhi yeah. while talking to people right. and running an ashram. Yeah, that's a different a different state, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's an important point is that you know that which initially might require complete inward turning of the senses and inability to function eventually can get integrated and stabilized and live in the midst of all functioning. And that doesn't mean you're living in a sense of, in a state of not having your senses functioning. It means you're, you're they're functioning. And, and yet that pure awareness, which once required complete inward absorption is now stabilized in the midst of anything. Yes. I think that's true. Yeah. And I was, I was listening to Adya last night, and he was uh, on a recording, and he was saying something about how there are degrees of situations which might test that. And he was referring to his his health problems and the severe pain it had caused him. And he, you know, so there's certain things that you can tolerate without losing your equanimity. But he said, it, even in his own experience, at times it went past a certain point, and you know, he was less established maybe than he. Yeah, would like to have been. I think that's true, that great physical pain or, uh, I mean, it's not that, I don't believe that when you're awakened or liberated that you never have feelings either. People grief. Um, I remember when, when Baba Haridas at Mount Madonna Center, when one of his primary students that was everybody thought would probably take his role eventually uh, died, and, uh, you know, he felt it. He talked about feeling it, you know. But what he said, what he would say, he didn't talk, but he would write on his little chalkboard. He said um, that you, when you're awakened, you don't, it's not that you never have a feeling. It's just that you don't hold on to it. You don't carry it around. It, it, it flows through you. And I, I thought that made a lot of sense. Also, you have more of a, a buffer. I mean, let's say you're a billionaire um, and you you gain or lose a thousand dollars. It's no big deal, you know. You're a billionaire, but let's say you you're you're homeless and you're living on the street, gaining or losing a thousand dollars, even though it's the same amount of money, would be a huge deal. So you know, this this sort of pure awareness or whatever we want to call it is is like a kind of a inner affluence, um, which <laughs> results in natural equanimity. It's a good way of putting it, yeah. 
there's a lot of practical advice in your book about sort of preparing for awakening, getting grounded, getting stabilized, you know, preparing the vessel. Um, and uh, so maybe we could talk about that a little bit. If someone has a, a deep yearning for enlightenment or awakening, they have a longing, um, what can they do to prepare for its dawning and to support it? Well, I think that, uh, of course, having a, a consistent meditation practice, uh, going into stillness, I always recommend uh, Aja's true meditation is a good place to start. But uh, other schools of meditation, or if you have a center near you that does mindfulness or something like that, or TM or whatever, is having a consistent meditation which you're sincerely uh, using it to connect with your longing for truth. It's a longing for truth. It started out for me as a longing to know if there was a God, but but everybody has a kind of a different longing or a different way of voicing what it is they're seeking. I mean, some people are just seeking inner peace or something of that sort. But I think that the longing for truth, not caring what the truth is, I want to know what's true. And then just dropping it and going into deep stillness um, is helpful. Uh, something to open up your body a little bit better, like yoga or qigong, something that opens up those energy flows in the body is very helpful. If you know that you've had a trauma in your history, you've had any kind of a rough time as a child um, or a young adult, if you've had psychotherapy, it's very helpful because yoga brings up everything and it's going to bring up um, meditation and yoga will eventually bring up any repressed issues that you are holding on to. So if you've learned how to look at that and hold it and work with it already, it's much easier. You're already familiar with the territory and you already have some, um, you've learned some skills for coping with old memories or distressing habits and things like that. It's good to be healthy, to take care of your body. Those are all, I think those are the, the basics. Those are the basics. I'm going to drink a little water. Sometimes I cough when I talk so much. I know. Just as you said, it's important to be healthy. You coughed. <laughs> I know. I have something to work, work on that, I guess. I've got some kind of a throat blockage. You said that the longing for God or to know if there's a God was one of your initial impetuses. What's the plural of impetus? Impeti? I don't know. In any, in any case, uh, how did that go? I mean, how, how, what's your orientation to that question now? Well, that happened to me uh, back in the days when I was in that organization called Creative Initiative that I mentioned. Um, I uh, began to do some psychological work. Uh, my mother died suddenly when I was 14. And it had taken away my faith in God. I was raised Catholic. And to me, if God could do that, God was at the very best. If God existed, he was indifferent. That was how I interpreted that because she was very devotional. And um, she had a, a brain hemorrhage that, uh, she, that she died from. So it was unexpected. And in those days, they didn't have the ability that they do today that she might have survived. So I was pretty shut down for 10 years, uh, at least. Um, and when we started to do personal work in this organization, I began to open up to the pain and the loss that I'd never worked on and uh, began to see 
that there was kind of a hole in me. And I discovered it wasn't just the missing my mother, but it was missing God, because I had had a strong devotion as a young child. And so people said, well, I said, well, I, I don't know how to fix this. And people said, well, why don't you meditate? So that I had never learned to meditate being a Catholic. And I uh, began to do all that serious meditation I mentioned earlier. But it was really with that deep desire to know if there was a God. And um, I had a, a major kind of opening during that time in, in which I just it, the, the question went away. It wasn't as if God appeared. It was more like uh, some kind of an expansion happened that um, that I it just the question disappeared. I did God was no longer some person out there that I was looking for. And I felt connected, I guess you could say. And I felt very blissful. It was very blissful, uh, really wonderful. I was very happy. And what happened is I was about uh, 28 or 30 at the time, and um, I was washing dishes one day, and I was feeling wonderful. And I thought, I'll never do anything with my life if I feel wonderful washing dishes. <laughs> and so I decided to go back to graduate school and become a counselor. And uh, so during those years of going back to graduate school and taking on all of the all of that, starting my work in that field, I kind of had lost that deep connection. And that's one of the reasons I went back to a graduate school that had a spiritual component because I wanted to reconnect. And by then, my question was more: I uh, just take me further, let me know what's true, give me, bring me to truth. Um, so that was really the driving force in my own uh, story. Would you um, consider yourself a seeker now, or do you feel like that whole seeking energy has dropped off just as the God question dropped off? Yeah, the off? seeking, I don't have any interest in seeking, but, um, but I keep staying open to possibilities. But I don't, it's not an attachment. It's like uh, I'm, I'm happy where I am. Um, I, I want to be of more use to people that I work with. So I still stay open to learning as much as I can, but I'm not attached. I just uh, want to stay open to what life wants to give me. Yeah. Do you still meditate or do some kind of spiritual practice? Uh, off and on, not with a consistency, not with, a, there's no drive. But, but I'll feel like it and sit down and drop into that space, yeah. And I do satsang, too, so I'm also meditating when I, I satsang it. You I offer what? satsang uh, in Ashland here where I live. Oh, so you meditate so I you do that. Do that yeah. Then. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. From, from the out, I, I, some, I had my 50th anniversary of learning to meditate um, this summer, and I done it very regularly ever uh, ever since and sometimes people I, I actually got a little flack when i announced that on facebook because some people said geez you know 50 years haven't you sort of gotten it by now you're still seeking after all these years like paul simon's still crazy after all these years i don't relate to it that way it's it's more like, like kind of like what you were just saying about a ongoing interest and fascination and exploration and adventure and and there's you know so much to learn and experience and 
it's no longer driven by the sort of empty craving feeling that you kind of may start out with. It's, it's more like feeling a great deal of fullness and contentment and yet no diminishment of, of enthusiasm and fascination with this whole this whole field. I agree. I, I feel like it's a, I think of it as like a marinating in the truth, marinating in the, that deep stillness uh, and, and to be open to see what will arise. And, uh, and uh, it's like going home. People have told me, other people have said that to me too. They feel like it's, it's just going home. And, you know, Aj is doing a program right now on um, a three-month uh, meditation program that I'm participating in. And one of the things he says is that if, you, if you've had an awakening, don't just assume it's done and that's it. I don't need to do anymore. Keep sitting, keep meditating, because there's an unlimited potentiality that can arise. I don't know if that's the language he used, but that's my interpretation, that don't, don't stop, keep sitting, he recommends. And I, I think that's really true. I always tell the people that come to me with their issues, um, Keep sitting. See what what's next. You know, just it helps you to embody it to move from that place more and more. And you can drift away from it if you never take the time to go into silence. I'm no expert on the Buddha's life, but I'm told that he practiced some kind of meditation mm-hmm. all of his life. You know, some hours a day. And yet he was already liberated. And, you know, Especially today, I think, uh, we're living in a really intense world. You know, there's all kinds of uh, data being thrown at us all the time, most of it geared to make us frightened or worried about something. There's crowds, there's traffic. We're not living in a nurturing environment for the most part. Uh, and, and I think meditation gives you a a center, it gives you a connection with your core so that you can move much more from the center, from the hara, from the deepest point of connectedness in the world. And that it's very easy to get scattered otherwise. There's always something on the television or the radio or the driver next to you that's that's wired, that's, that's throwing negative energy your way. Um, it's very important, I think, for people in an awakening process, usually your sensitivity becomes very heightened. And it's, sometimes it's really important, especially during certain stages, uh, to avoid as much as you can toxic input, whether it be people that upset you a lot or going into big box stores or watching too much television. Some people can't even read the newspaper today. Because your sensitivity, all your senses are just more, much more acute, at least for a while. Yeah, for a while. I mean, it depends on what what, what you what you can handle. I, I went through a phase where I would just feel scatterbrained and drained if I went into a Walmart or something. Now, yeah, now it doesn't bother yeah. me. It's and, a stage, yeah. usually. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it's just important to, I think the meditation gives you a home base, you know, it helps you grow that stillness inside of yourself. And that makes it more and more tolerable to be in environments that are static. Yeah, I find it rejuvenating. I also find it interesting to challenge it in ways that aren't deleterious, such as 
you know, playing really intense sports or something like that. And just, and, and, and kind of finding the, the juxtaposition of silence with that intensity is, is just fine. You know, it, it, it's not, not shaken by having pickleballs <laughs> slammed at my head. That's great. <laughs> um, the, the term spiritual emergence, you know, when I first heard that term, I, I thought it was sort of a play on the term emergency because you hear about people having kind of emergencies with kundalini awakenings that they can't handle and so on. And I guess that's part of what Stan Groff was trying to help people with. Um, but I guess what, and you could tell me in a second if, if, that, if that sort of is a, if there's some synonymousness there, but, but emergence really means some, like a, a chick emerging from an egg. It means a sort of a, a or a plant emerging from the ground. It, it means sort of a blossoming forth. And I guess that's the sense in which that term is, is I would used say in that so. It's, it's, you could say consciousness, uh, presence is emerging, uh, something, and the energy is emerging. There's a, there's a, something new is emerging and changing the system. More, uh, more often it's um, equated with a uh, uh, butterfly emerging from a cocoon. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's why you have that on your book cover. Yeah. Lots of little butterflies. Do you often deal with people? I think I've referred some people to you who were having a real hard time. I mean, and what percentage of the people you, you talk with are having a difficult time coping with the kundalini awakening that they're experiencing? Oh, gosh. Well, it depends on what you mean by a hard time. So there's a huge range with some people. Most of the people I talk to, once they have a context and uh, they begin to make friends with the energy, to make friends with what's happening to them and to get interested in it in a more neutral way and let go of their fear, um, then a lot of the issues, a lot of the challenges stop. I mean, they still have difficulties figuring out what to do about, oh, their head is jerking a lot or their, um, you know, various things are happening. But once they develop a cooperative relationship with the energy them, itself, instead of saying, I, I, I don't want to have this happening, stop it. Um, sometimes people go for a few days without sleeping and that's going to make them look very psychotic. And those are the ones that often end up hospitalized. The ones that end up hospitalized are usually uh, they've had the awakening on a psychedelic or they um, have gone, they've gotten very, very wired, excited. Maybe they were in India. Uh, they were very new and mature about it and uh, they didn't sleep for two or three days. Well, anybody who doesn't sleep for two or three days is going to look psychotic. It doesn't require Kundalini awakening or they have an experience. And there's several examples of this in my book. Um, one woman was a psychiatrist. She had a very dramatic experience with a lot of visualization um, after an opening that occurred um, uh, during, I think, during labor or related to birthing a baby. And um, her husband hospitalized her because he was so alarmed by it. Um, so she, you know, if that happens, it's hard because people have this little gnawing feeling something's really seriously wrong with me and they really but gee I had this ecstatic moment of total unity and you know what does that mean if something's wrong with me well that kind of uh, relates to what I was saying earlier about the importance of knowledge and experience if you know uh, without 
adequate knowledge of what's happening, your head starts shaking or something, you think you've got a neurological disorder, but if you, which you may, and you, you might need to get it checked out, but there are all kinds of phenomena like that that happen with Kundalini awakenings that could be, could be really disconcerting if, if you have no idea what it is, but which are just, you, you take it in stride with a shrug if you know that that's what it is. It's all, okay, fine. Uh, something good is happening. Nothing, this is not dangerous. I'll just kind of. You know, one of the things I've really tried to do with my book, and I'm not sure if it comes across, is, um, is show the general good health of most people who go into a spiritual awakening process, that most of the people I talk to have had successful lives at some level. They've either been uh, you know, they may have raised a family. Uh, they may be professionals in their field. Uh, I've talked to judges, uh, psychiatrists, teachers, prof- college professionals, IT professionals. They're people who are not people who have um, personality disorders or, or other kinds of problems before this happened to them. So they, they're able to look at what's happening with a little bit of distance. Instead of being totally immersed in it the way that you might be if you're more tending toward more psychosis, they're seeing these weird things and they're saying, what's going on here? I don't understand it. I don't, I don't care about my work anymore. Um, I'm uh, having all this energy. I can't sleep at night because my energy is revving up and running through me. I'm scared because um, I had this this vision. I don't know what it means. So they're trying to understand it. And they're not unhealthy people. And so once they get a context that makes a little sense to them, and they can see some things they can do to kind of ground the energy or maybe they need to do less of some kind of practice they're doing. They need to get a new context because somebody's told them that they were crazy or that the devil was after them and they knew that couldn't be so. And so they don't have any context. Um, But once they get that, um, then they can work with it. And the other thing I've been doing with people that I do assessments with is uh, I, I started doing webinars where I bring them together and they, they love it because many of them, I've had people in Norway and Switzerland and uh, China, uh, Taiwan, and I mean, they're, they're all alone. They don't know a single person they can talk to about this. Uh, and if they do try to talk to people in their community, uh, the people at the very best don't understand what they're talking about. Um, they may be supportive because, oh, I really care about you. I'm sorry you're going through this. But they have no no way of helping them get any kind of understanding. So they're so happy to meet other people and see that these other people look just as normal as you and I. They're just normal people. They've had different careers. They're interesting people. And um, then they start to feel more, okay, okay, well, all right, I guess this is something important I need to understand better that's happening to me. And, and maybe when I was meditating and asking to see God, this was what I was, I didn't know this was what I was going to get, but this is the process. And so once they understand that, uh, things calm down greatly. Getting rid of fear is the most important thing anyone can do. And, uh, and, and then there's a lot of other things you can do. You, if you can learn to really trust the energy uh, itself to accept and trust it makes a huge difference. 
you can uh, do creative activities to try to express some of that energy. That's very helpful. Uh, there's many things they can, if your body's tight and rigid, you can get some body work or do some energy practices that open you up more. So once they get a handle on, there's actually things I can do to get in a more cooperative relationship with this process. They, they feel a lot better and it becomes not such a challenge anymore. So that doesn't really take very long. It's really just knowing. Yeah. Good. Oh, that's an interesting point. I'm glad we keep coming back to that, the, the value of knowledge. There's that saying, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, you know. And I think that the more one can understand this whole process without, you know, becoming obsessive about it, but the, um, the, the better served one will be. Um, but it's an interesting point you just made about most of the people who come to you are fairly accomplished people, professionals of some sort or something. It, it, you're kind of saying, I guess, that there seems to be a correlation between having one's act together, having one's life together, being a coherent, mature uh, person with a well-developed sense of self and having some kind of awakening. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I feel is any, anybody can have an awakening but um, most of the ones who contact me are, uh, they, their history shows that they were pretty functional, very functional before. Uh, an exception is young, really young people, 19 or 20 year olds. And they're usually, often it's because of a psychedelic that they've had this opening. And they haven't really yet developed their place in the world. You know, they're still in that uh other transitional phase of, of figuring out who I'm going to be. And it's a lot harder in a way for some of them because um, then it, it's, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to quite explain it, but um, it's good. I, you know, you've probably seen that. Several of the Buddhist teachers have said that. It's much better to have a good ego before you go through this process uh, than not to have it. If you're pretty unstable, if you're, borderline or, or uh, bipolar, you can still have an awakening, but it's much harder to figure out how to cope with it because your, your way of functioning is more erratic. And so it's, you know, you really need to take care of the underlying psychological issues before you can actually mature the awakening process. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a kind of a, a mix of learning, you know, how, what do I have to do to take care of myself so that I can deepen my awakening and, and um, live with more deeper peace and presence in the world? Yeah, it's an interesting point. You take kind of a dim view of psychedelics, I, I think, in your book. At least that's the feeling I got as I was reading that section. Yet these days, there's a lot of interest in it. People are microdosing, and there's popular books out. Michael Pollan, whom I hope to interview, has a book called Changing Your Mind, in which he compares the mind to a snow globe. And he said, you know, at a certain point in your life, it's good to just shake up the snow globe, which is precisely why I, I would be very reticent to use anything like that, because I feel like I'd be playing Russian roulette with my brain. Um, <laughs> I think there's been a certain amount of um, brain sculpting going on, to use another popular term, neuroplasticity, all these years, and why gamble with it? But for some people, it seems to really precipitate uh, an awakening. And yet, as you say, um, you know, taking the, the 60s as an example, if 
if people go about it in any kind of a, a reckless way, or if they're not mature and healthy, psychologically healthy, they can get into big trouble. And one more statement before I bounce it back to you. And, and yet, in spite of what I just said, psychedelics apparently they are being used to help people with suffering from PTSD and alcoholism and stuff like that. So there's some conflicting evidence in there. And, and I think, and since it's been illegal, it's been hard for adequate research to be, to be done. But there's certainly growing interest yeah, in it. These I days. think that it's quite possible to have very expansive experiences on psychedelics. The difference is that once you take it, once you use that that substance, you have no control. It's just going to do what it's going to do, and you have no way of knowing what it's going to do. So, if you're a very adventurous person and you're pretty stable, you know, maybe it's not a problem, but. Uh, it's a totally unpredictable ride. So I've heard positive things and negative things about it. Uh, I've run into a number of people who had huge openings when they were young in the 60s. And one friend of mine, he um, was found wandering on the beach, babbling and totally out of control and was hospitalized. And that whole experience stunned him so much that it was years before he was willing to go back to any kind of spiritual. He was afraid of meditation and spiritual things, afraid it would throw him into that same place. And I think there's probably a number of people that have happened too. Um, you know, Ram Dass is a case in point that he decided let go of the psychedelics and go to India and find some real teachers about this stuff. And that worked out well for him. But it's a, it's really a crapshoot. Um, for some people, it's going to be helpful, and for others, it's not. And uh, there's a new uh, drug now that seems to open up a part of the brain. They're calling it the God pill. That one can go into very beautiful connectedness that uh, people are experimenting with too. I've known the people I've known that it's a DMT. Yeah, or DMT. I've known people that have done that that are mature that that it seems to last about 15 minutes or 20 minutes. It's not like four or five hours. The people I know that have used it are very mature people, very experienced people, and it hasn't been a huge problem. But they've appreciated the the boost, um, but I don't know of generally there I, there's no research on that kind of thing right now and and who knows whether it's whether it has long-term impact on the brain that's positive or negative we won't ever know till we are able to research such things that's the thing i, I also wonder although i'm in favor of marijuana being legalized because i think it's ridiculous that people are being you know put in jail for it as I was a couple of times back in the sixties. Um, I, at the same time, I wonder what it's, what the long-term effect is going to be of, of its use. Um, I know what the long-term effect on me on, on, would have been had I been doing it all these years, I would be a very different person in a, in a bad way than I am now. Um, so, but who knows, maybe it'll be like it was for us. Maybe it'll be a stepping stone for some people. I don't think that marijuana is, particularly good for people who are in a spiritual process. I think that I, the people, I've known a few who have had spiritual experiences while smoking marijuana, they meditate on it, uh, who became 
quite the the mind got quite distorted it a little more a little more psychotic ep- type episodes uh, or the lack of judgment and discrimination I, I cite one in my book a man I met many years ago who um, had been a follower of Muktananda and, and uh, he would do practices looking at Muktananda's picture and smoking marijuana. One time he was on an airplane and he decided he had to bless everybody. So he's walking up and down the aisles, blessing everybody. And of course he got arrested because he wouldn't sit down. And he had other tendencies like that that got him in a lot of trouble. And it's like the brain, I don't think the the brain is going through changes in long-term meditation. It's slowly evolving and opening up new brain centers. And when you throw in a substance that uh, creates images, allows you to have kind of a hallucinatory experience, it's all mixed up. You don't know what's real and what isn't. And uh, your your discrimination isn't so good. So I, I can't speak from experience about marijuana because that isn't part of my history, but... Um, I've certainly talked to a lot of people that use it and some are attached, even though they're waking up. They, the other thing a yogi once told me is that it leaves toxins in the body, um, it stores in the fat cells. And one of the things the Kundalini is trying to do is release all your toxins. So if you're smoking pot regularly, you're going to have probably more intense need to release energy. But then other people have told me it calms the energy down. So uh, it's it's kind of it'd be do interesting it would be to do some really serious research in that area. Yeah, I remember seeing some research that indicated that there's some kind of chemical gunk deposited in between in the synapses between neurons. You know, if people smoke a lot of pot, um, but I don't know. It's it's this whole topic is somewhat a matter of opinion, although I think it's something that could be researched more. But um, I have friends in India who who are of the opinion that 99% of those sadhus who sit around the Ganges smoking pot are just bums. You know, they're they're just sort of they're potheads. There's not nothing, no real serious significance to their realization. I would believe that. You know, you're reminding me though of a Christina Groff's book, the um, something about the something search for the self, and she talks about her own addictions. And, and how important it was for her to get off of alcohol and drugs uh, in order, the, how much it messed up her, her um, spiritual process, her awakening process. I can't remember the full title of the book, but it was by Christina Groff, if, if any of your listeners are interested. Well, the body is the temple of the soul, and, uh, and it's the instrument through which anything is experienced and, uh, and through which awakening is, is experienced. And so... You know, I think what you and I have been talking about for two hours is there's an importance to cultivating or culturing the vehicle so it's better and better able to support this experience, which we're interested in. And uh, by experience, I mean an abiding state, not just some flash in the pan. And drugs tend to be flashes in the pan by definition. They, you go up, you come down. Um, and so it's just... Um, something to be approached if one is going to approach it at all with tremendous caution and respect. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I had this realization when I was 18 on LSD one time, and it was the last time I ever took drugs, which is, you know, I, just, I was sitting there reading a Zen book, Zen flesh, Zen bones, three in the morning. 
And, you know, it just kind of struck me. I thought, wow, you know, these guys are really serious and I'm just screwing around. And if, if I keep, if I keep on like this, I'm going to live a miserable life. And what's more, I'm stuck in this body. And if I damage this body, I'm going to be stuck in a damaged body. It wasn't as, I wouldn't have been able to articulate as clear it as clearly at that point, but that was the essential realization. I thought that's it. I'm going to stop taking drugs, learn to meditate and see what happens. And I'm grateful that I did. Um, so I'm open-minded. I want to interview Michael Pollan and some other people on, on that topic. I've done so before, but I'm just very, very cautious and reticent on, on the topic because I've seen so much damage. Yeah, you know, so I agree. I, I feel the same way. I'm not, I'm not a, totally opposed to it, but I think it can go in any direction, and, and you're really taking a gamble. And if you're a gambler, yeah might be worthwhile for you but if you you really want a functional stable life with deep inner peace if your draw is to for peace rather than drama um you might want to do meditation instead yeah i think another thing is you know whatever drugs do um to our brain chemistry um to enable to to enable us to have certain experiences i think research most researchers would say we we have the capability of, of producing those chemicals or those, those brain states without any substances. There are sort of subjective methodologies, such as meditation and other spiritual practices, which can elicit those things, and, but, we'll only, but we'll do so in a more safe way when the time is right, you know, when you've actually built up the, the degree of purity or clarity that would naturally um, support such an experience. But like you said earlier, I mean, someone young person, no spiritual background or anything else, they can pop anything in their mouth and might elicit all sorts of changes in the brain, but are they really prepared for that? All the deep conditionings and impressions and impurities and everything else that may be in the system, they're still going to be there. And you may, um, you know, stir up a, a hornet's nest if, if you just, um, you know, embark on such a thing without the kind of preparation that serious spiritual traditions usually yeah, advocate. I agree. It's, uh, it's just a slow transformative process with meditation or breath practices and yoga. It's a slow evolving and changing of the brain. Um, with a drug, it's sudden, and, and you just have no predictability about what's going to get changed or how you're going to feel afterwards or uh, if something you need is going to fall away. <laughs> Or something is going to get added, like these uh, visions and things that you that are going to be more of a nuisance than a, a benefit. And also, I mean, how are you going to stabilize it? That was one of the complaints of Ramdas and others. Well, you always come down, and um, you know, are you going to take LSD all your life in order to uh, <laughs> in order to stabilize a state of realization? I don't think so. I don't think it's going to have that effect. So you kind of have to think long term. Uh, and, you know, what, what is really going to serve me over the course of my entire life. Yeah, that's wise. Yep, I agree. Uh, well, I don't know if I, we want to end on, on this note. We've been talking about all kinds of things, and here we, now we've been talking about drugs the last 10, 15 minutes. Is, it, is there anything, uh, you know, that we haven't talked about that you want to be sure to, to mention before we wrap it up? Well, I would say that... Um, in my book, I offer a lot of uh, 
solutions, sort of solutions, potential solutions for various phenomena that arise. Uh, but generally, uh, I just want to say that that there's certain cornerstones that really help people in this process. Uh, meditation, uh, working directly, being friendly with your energy, getting curious instead of being afraid, meeting and clearing up your old psychological stuff, trusting this is a process that wants to bring you to a new level of functioning, much more inner peace, much more clarity. It's not out to harm you in any way. Using creative expression to express some of it and to take good care of your body and to be authentic. And those are kind of the cornerstones that I've been using uh, in my groups and really in looking at what does somebody really need. And if anybody listening is a therapist or a yoga teacher or meditation teacher, those are the things that people need uh, in order to move to a more balanced and harmonious place with their energy. So um, I just want to make sure people know that. That's my, my mission in life is to get that information out there. So Those are pretty useful prescriptions for life, that's anybody's true. life, you know, spiritual aspirant or not. <clears throat> a question just came in from a listener in Austin, Texas. I might as well ask this. Um, She's it's Kate from Austin. Oh, I just said Austin. Um, she said, I had a drastic change of personality, much more open and relaxed. I would like to, I, I would shake and lie still for hours in a night or day. Didn't need to speak for days at a time. Felt lovely. However, a lot of sexual energy, which was fairly alarming. And I still have, uh, I, I still have to swim. She's not using punctuation here. And I still have to swim a mile and do yoga once a day. What's all that bit about? Well, you know, the energy comes up from the base of the spine and it can get stuck in any of the chakra areas or it can overactivate any of them. So sometimes it just gets stuck in the sexual area in the second chakra and it can be very uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes when it's in the heart, uh, really active, you can feel a difficulty with your heart, with your chest beating too hard or, or trouble breathing. Sometimes in the throat, you have these funny neck movements. What I usually tell people is there's a, there's two possibilities that's helpful. Learn the Bij mantras, B-I-J mantras. Those are tones that you can use to activate each of the chakras and you can use them to move energy from one chakra to another. You can find people doing those a couple of places on the YouTube. Um, they're classical yoga sounds for each chakra. Om is the one for the third eye. We're mostly familiar with Om. Um, they're Lam, Vam, Ram, Yam, Ham, Om. Those are all listed in my book. Uh, the other thing is on my website, my kundaliniguide.com website, there's a meditation for harmonizing chakras that I put on there that I felt would be useful to help people learn that through attention, you can move energy to different areas. So you're, it's part of that becoming relation in a relationship with your own energy. It's your own life force. It's your own energy. But you can get in relationship to it and you can learn to kind of, when it's too much in one area, bring it to another area of the, of the sh chakra system. Uh, and so that's what the meditation on my website was designed for. Some people have said it was helpful, so I would suggest that. 
The other thing is if this person is doing, they need to look at their life and see if they're doing anything that's overcharging them. It's good to be a detective. You know, like when I have too much sexual energy, what was I doing that day? Or when I have, I'm awake all night with too much energy. What did I eat? What was, who was I talking to? Was I worried about something? What was going on? So that you can kind of learn to adjust your day to the, to the things that feel more balanced and harmonious. Uh, and you can recognize in a way the trigger points for, because think of the energy, it's trying to release stress from your body. It's trying to release everything. It's trying to make you very, very open. So the more you've got in there that's stressful or anxious or, or you're preoccupied with something, the more it's gonna need to work that out. And it usually chooses it to do it in the middle of the night. So. That's, that's what comes to mind anyway, right off the top. I do, usually I do consultations uh, where I send people a questionnaire so that I can get background information. I can be much more specific about what I, the guidance I offer. If I know someone's history, I'm always looking for correlations between certain behaviors or beliefs or history and the kind of phenomena that they're struggling with. Uh, so that, that's kind of the focus. So Kate could get in touch with you. Yeah, they can reach me through my websites. Yeah. Is based there's a contact on kundaliniguide.com or awakeningguide.com, uh, and then I'll send them the questionnaire mm-hmm. and other information about the assessments, and that's the best way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll link. Uh, yeah, I'll link to those things from your page on Batgap. Also, I think it sounds good that she swims a that mile is a good. day and does yoga. Yeah. That's that's great. I'm a big advocate of physical activity. A lot of times spiritual types sit around yeah. their butts too much and don't. In fact, I was just talking to a friend the other day here in, in Fairfield uh, where, you know, thousands of people have been meditating for years. And he, he saw a bunch of people recently that he hadn't seen in a long time. He was hey. shocked at how old they looked. And he, ha- he happens to be a tennis instructor. And I see him up at the gym all the time because I go up there. And we, we both thought that, you know, the problem is, is – inactivity. These people sit around too much. Their diet might be inadequate, you know, and uh, they don't get enough sun and, and, you know, it ages you. So it's again, coming back to this theme of the the body is the vehicle you have to take care of it and balance. I agree. I think it's, it's very good to do something physical to, to keep in uh, your body healthy and as open as possible. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I guess that's a pretty good wrap-up point. Thank you, Kate, for that question. That enabled us to sort of end it on that interesting practical note. And um, and I presume those who have been listening understand that, you know, you can get in touch with Bonnie if if you feel that what she has to offer might be useful to you. And I think just about everybody at some stage of their spiritual practice might find it useful. But in any case, there are her books and I have read two of them now, one for each of the interviews I've done, and I'll be listing them all on batgap.com, linking to them, um, so people can check them out if they like. I found them very – in fact, this one, there's this guy named uh, (laughs) Rick Archer who said, uh, you'll find this one of the more useful and memorable spiritual books you've ever read. I appreciate (laughs) that. My little – blurb on the back <laughs> I was I, I like practical advice and I like people who they don't have a one-size-fits-all attitude they realize that there's so many varieties to spiritual experience and everybody's just not going to fit into the same mold and and 
you know, different people are going to need different bits of advice or practices or remedies or, or what therapies or whatever in order to deal with whatever they're going through. I think that's the reality of the situation. Okay, great. So um, let me just make a wrap-up point or two. You've been listening to a, an interview with Bonnie Greenwell. This is my second interview with her. And if you enjoyed this one, you might want to go back and listen to the first one as well. I'll link to that from, I'll, link, I'll interlink them on, on BatYap. And um, obviously, I continue to do these. If you would like to be notified of new ones, go to batgap.com and sign up for, to be notified by email, or you could subscribe to the YouTube channel. It also exists as an audio podcast for those who like to listen while driving and stuff. Next week, I'm going to the SAND conference. Are you going there, Bonnie? No, I won't be there this year. Okay, well, I'm going out, and I'll be doing a bunch of interviews there and panel discussion and whatnot, and I'll be putting them all up on that gap. So there'll be the usual post-SAND flood of, of material uh, when I get back. Um, so thanks a lot for listening or watching. And we'll see you for the next one. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.